0: Good morning. It is uh, great to be here. We're in a series, I think this is the last one in our summer series on the Psalms. A number of us have been asked to speak on a favourite Psalm and uh, I began with uh, Bishop Ernest from Kenya with Psalm 84 and then Mike Fuller did the morning Psalm 139 a few weeks ago and Jill Cheeseman in the evening Psalm 126 and then last Sunday I was told I was a sheep. So, slight change of tack there, and so were you. And there was even a picture of me on the screen, which was a bit embarrassing, uh, but it was Psalm 23, and Hillsgrew uh, spoke on that one. And last Sunday evening, it was Julie Keat on Psalm 117. It's been an amazing series, and if you've missed any of them, uh, do go onto the website and look at them and, and uh, uh, spend some time with them there. It's been lots of good stuff. The Psalms are an extraordinary part of our Bible. They are this beautiful collection of poems and prayers, most of which were, were, were turned into song. Uh, thousands of years ago. And many Christians for 2,000 years have found the Psalms among their most treasured parts of our Bible. I wonder if you do as well. In here we find praise and adoration. We find thanksgiving. There are some Psalms, are Psalms of lament, where pain and frustration is just raw emotions poured out to God. And there's a place for that. There are Psalms that are looking back to what God has done, and there are Psalms that are looking forward. It's an amazing, amazing book. I remember an evening that stands out for me about 13 years ago. I was in, sitting in the library in uh, the Theological College, I was training for ordination, and uh, sitting in the library, and, and at the time our module was on the Psalms. And I remember being surrounded by various textbooks and, and books of academics and scholars, and, uh, and I was really bored. And then, and then I felt guilty that I was bored, I shouldn't be bored, I should be enthralled, I should be excited, triumphant. But I, I, was, I was, oh gosh. And I just couldn't. I was wading through treacle, it felt. And then God spoke in a way which, you know how he does when just a sudden clarity comes and you know what you need to do next. And this is what God, God said. He, he basically said, get rid of those books for a moment and just get back into the Psalms for a moment. And so I did. I pushed the books away and I started reading the Psalms. And it was, it was just like, like when you charge, you plug your phone in and it goes, bing. And, and, the, and the battery level starts going up. And, and it was exactly what was happening to me. I couldn't stay in the library for more than five minutes because libraries are quiet places. And I, had to, I literally had to get out of the library and I went down the corridor where our college had a chapel. And for the next half hour or so, it, it was the noisy worship for me alone in the dark in the chapel just because I was just bursting. And the Psalms are those very, is a very special book. Uh, and it's there so that we can meet Uh, with God and spend time uh, in His presence. The book of Psalms is a book for every season in life. And I know that some of you are in possibly the toughest season you could imagine right now. The book of Psalms is for you. And that night reminded me that we don't read God's Word, we don't study God's Word so that we know more, but we study God's Word, we read His Word so that we know Him more. And that's what happened uh, for me that night. Our psalm today is Psalm 19, so maybe you would turn it up. There are a few Bibles at the front, and so you do not get too bored of my voice, I've asked my darling wife to read it for us. There's a mic. I hope it's on.
1: Is it on? Oh, yeah.
0: Thanks. And it's Psalm 19. It'll also be on the screen, so you can follow it along.
1: The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, and they use no words. No sound is heard from them yet. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens, And makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
0: Amen. Thanks. I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter. That's what C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19. The Psalter is the collection of all the Psalms. It's often published in churches as just one book, the book of Psalms, the Psalter. And C.S. Lewis acknowledged it's just an extraordinary poem. But initially, and I don't know if you felt this, there seems to be quite a shift, quite a jump, even a disconnect between the first bit, the first six verses, which is talking about creation, and then all of a sudden, it's talking about the law, the scriptures. And indeed, some early commentators actually thought, well, maybe over the years, something had gone wrong, and two psalms, separate psalms, had kind of been merged together to become one, because this is such a disconnect. But actually, that is not the case. It has always been one psalm, and it's actually beautifully crafted by David because it wants to take us on a journey. And I hope and pray that this morning I might help us take that journey together. The psalm is about revelation. You heard what uh, uh, was said this morning by um, the Cowlings this morning about revelation. Actually, This psalm is about the self-revelation of God. And what that means for us. And it starts with what he has revealed out there, in terms of creation. And then it shifts to what he has revealed in here, in the Word. So if you have a Bible open, you might find it helpful to follow or maybe turn the Bible on. And just have a look with me first at the first six verses. It's all about creation. It's this beautiful poetry. It paints a picture as we listen to the words. In fact, let's, let's just try this one, one more time. Would you perhaps uh, close your eyes? I'm going to read just a few of these opening verses. And if you're willing, just close your eyes and allow your mind to paint a picture on the canvas of, of your mind. So if you want to, close your eyes. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Okay, you can uh, open your eyes. Do you want to just make sure the person next to you is awake? It's never good for a preacher to have to tell the congregation to open their eyes, but there it is. <laughs> now, I, I wonder, I almost when I was thinking about that, and as I was hearing the words, even as I spoke them, you can almost feel the warmth. Did you kind of see maybe your memories and the sunsets? And It's amazing. Now, I wonder whether David was remembering when he was a young Lad, Looking after his father Jesse's sheep on the hills. And day after day, he would have experienced the warmth of that sun out in the Middle East. And he would have been like, wow. He would have seen a thousand sunsets where the sky was turning pink and orange and, weaving, and the sun weaving in between the clouds. And he would have just stared and gazed. Because that's what we do, isn't it? There is something beautiful. There is something stunning about a view from a hill. View from a hill. This is Leckhampton Hill. You've probably sat on that very bench. In fact, why do they put benches there? Because something is we want to stop and we want to sit and we wanna breathe and look and marvel. Why do we do that? Why do we find it beautiful? Many of you will have a, a memory of perhaps a holiday you were on and something, some view just captured your heart and your jaw dropped and possibly you were silent before creation. Maybe you were, you were skiing and just looking at the mountains. Maybe you were dipping your, your feet in the, in the waves and just looking out at the ocean. Possibly it was a sunrise or a huge storm. Or a walk through the woods. Something in us. It just does something to us, doesn't it? And it's like, oh, wow. Last year, we, we came back from living in Zimbabwe for a few few years. And uh, in Zimbabwe, we visited the Victoria Falls. Uh, one of the seven natural wonders of the world. And it, again, it's just adjectives kind of run out here and it's just wow. In fact, Zimbabwe, Africa is not known for its health and safety legislation. And so there's a massive section. It goes across for a whole kilometre, but over half a kilometre, there is no fencing at all. And so you can walk right up. You're on, you're on the dry side, kind of dry, and you can walk right up and just peer down this 300-foot kind of chasm into the stormy waters below. And then if you're like me, you kind of climb down a little bit and lean over and see how dangerous you can be. but there is something in us that goes, ah. Oh. How about the night sky? How about the night sky? We look up at it when we get the chance. And so think back to David. How many nights would he have lied, been lying on the grass just looking up? And he wouldn't have had the light pollution of cities that we know of, but he would have just gazed and seen the shooting stars and just gazing at the canopy. And we do it too. Why? Because creation Is pointing us to the creator. It's telling us, and we know it deep inside us, that there is someone else out there. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, if you are a Christian, if you've been a believer maybe for a number of years, if you've been convinced in the existence of God, well, then you'll be happy with that uh, explanation. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, I get that. And and also when you're there, you go, Yes, Lord, I know you're behind this. That's fantastic. But but our world, our culture, our society, many of your friends and family would they they'd actually they'd want to dismiss that, wouldn't they? They'd say, come on, this is this is just irrational or emotionalism. Surely your understanding is just a product of your social conditioning. And then they'll quote Richard Dawkins and say, Surely science has done away with childish notions of God. Surely you've heard that. Richard Dawkins says it quite often. And sometimes that just sideswipes us. Sometimes we don't know how to respond to that. Their dismissal, which they say so confidently, or even their ridicule can shake our faith and render us silent. Is this, Psalm 19, is it just beautiful literature? Is it just a nice idea? Or is it true? Are they the work of his hands when we think of the skies? So often it's presented to us as there's this dichotomy, science or belief. Choose which one you prefer because you can't have both. But that is not the case. I, am, uh, I love reading about some of the scientists, world-leading scientists who are convinced uh, in God. And often they say it's science that has led them to their conclusions. For example, they invite us to consider the Big Bang. The Big Bang is a concept we all know. It was first conceived in the 1920s. Fred Hoyle uh, coined the phrase on an interview on BBC Radio, 1949, the Big Bang. Actually, he was against it at the time. But today, it is pretty much universally accepted that the universe is expanding explosively from a single point. That's the, the idea of the Big Bang. And even the late, brilliant Stephen Hawking, he wrote this. He said, almost everyone now believes that the universe had a beginning at the Big Bang. But something had to make the Big Bang happen. One of America's top scientists, a man called Francis Collins, you may have heard his name. He was once the director of the Human Genome Project. He's won the U.S. National Medal of Honor. He's a very clever guy. Francis Collins said this, We conclude that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang, an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. And that implies that before that, there was nothing. He goes on, he says, I can't imagine how the universe created itself. The very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone outside of it was there to begin it. So to rephrase it, how can nothing go bang? Or how can nothing create something? There has to be something or someone outside of our natural world. Now, I was listening to John Lennox. Uh, he's a, a maths professor at Green College, Oxford. Many of you have heard him before. And uh, he was being interviewed by Eric McTexas. And, and he was talking about this. And some of the guys he debates with, leading atheists, leading scientists around the world, he's often debating. And uh, he was saying, well, well, how do they not come to the same conclusion? And he says the only way they avoid the same conclusion that God has created is by redefining nothing. And he's like, but actually, that's nonsense, because nothing is nothing. And he's, he's actually on, on, uh, in debate. He's had guys admit that their understanding of nothing is different to, to ours. So it's uh, a crazy thing to do. For a moment, let's put aside how the Big Bang happened. Let's just think about what the Big Bang created. Because again, it's another clue, another reassurance, another encouragement for us. You see, for organic life, to exist on planet Earth, the constants of physics have to be just so. The gravitational constant, the constants of weak and strong nuclear force, the ratio of electrons to protons, the electromagnetic force, and so many other quirky, geeky, scientific things that I don't fully understand, but some of you might. They, some scientists say there are 26, at least 26 constants that have to be just So, and one scientist said, if any of those constants was off by even one part in a million, the universe could not have come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would be no galaxy, no stars, no planets or people. And even Stephen Hawking said, he concluded, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I want to quote two final uh, scientists, and uh, they're extraordinary. A former NASA astronomer, John O'Keefe, said, If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. It's my view that these circumstances indicate the universe was created for man to live in. Let's bring it back home again to another Brit a British astrophysicist, Paul Davies. Now, this guy is very bright. He's won the Kelvin Medal. He's won the Faraday Prize. Uh, Extremely clever guy. And he says, There is powerful evidence that something is going on behind it all. It seems as though someone has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. Isn't that good? A design implies... A designer, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he put it this way. He said, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Amazing. I get pretty excited about this. I don't know if you noticed, but it just stirs me that way. But for David in Psalm 19, this is just the start of our journey. And he's for David, this is, this is the way in. So he starts there, and he's saying all this is, is pointing to someone. Pointing to someone behind it all. The one who made it. Now I want to bring this back to Revelation. Psalm is about Revelation. So natural Revelation, the creation. Natural Revelation leads to... An awareness of God. But then David goes on to the next point and he talks about the scriptures, the law, the word, and he says the revelation of God's word leads to a relationship with God. Do you get that? Natural revelation, an awareness of God, the revelation of his word, a relationship with God. It's an amazing thing. And David's so careful with how he chooses his words. If you look down at uh, verse 1, You'll notice the word God in verse 1, and in Hebrew it's, it's the simplest word, it's the most basic word, it's the word El. It's the least specific word to describe God. They had a number of them, but this is the least specific. And then look further on to verse 7 and onwards, and he changes the word. And here he writes Yahweh. We translate it as Lord. And this word tells us so much more about God. This word always speaks about God's character and about his relational nature. It comes seven times from verse 7 to the end. And we're beginning to see that God is not just the, wow, what an awesome creator God, but he's also the God who comes up close and personal. So there are six Amazing statements David puts about God's Word right in the middle there. And these are so illuminating. I want to quickly break them into nouns and adjectives and outcomes because this might help us. And the nouns, they're essentially all synonyms describing God's Word. Law, statutes, precepts, commands. Even that one, the fifth one, the fear of the Lord, actually one translator would say it's that written word that should evoke that sense of awe and reverence in us that's why it's written the fear of the Lord. It's like wow this is amazing and then finally the decrees so they're all talking about God's word and, and you know what David's doing he's he's telling us that this isn't just a good book it's, it's not just a relaxing novel take it to the beach with you it's not 10 top tips for a happy life no he's saying hang on hang on this is something epic. This is important. This is heavy. It has gravity to it. These are his words, his instructions for his kids. And David doesn't describe them as as, uh, thoughts and suggestions and, oh, ideas. No, he's using strong language. Laws, commands, rules. And the language is strong. But think about it. It's going to be. Isn't it? There are many parents in this room. When a parent sees something healthy for a child, they tell the child what to do. Go outside and play. Go on, go out, go and play. Because you know, as a parent, it's good for them. Eat your vegetables. Because we know it's good for them. And there are so many more. Go and say sorry to your brother. We say that one quite a lot to one of ours. When a parent sees something healthy, we tell them the children what to do. When a parent sees something where their children might be in danger, we're even stronger. We command them, wait for me at the curbside, stop running along the edge of the pool, get back from the fire, and many other examples. And actually, we get really firm and we speak with authority. Are you trying to stop your children from having fun? Are you just being grumpy again? No, of course you're not. We want our children to be safe, and we want our children to thrive, and enjoy life, and experience it, and grow, and learn, and laugh, and and all of those things. And there are times when we speak with firmness, because we know it's the right thing for them. So why? So why do we think that God would be any different? in his fatherhood, in his approach to us as father to children. Why? He's not. It's the same. Well, actually, he is. He's better, and he's more consistent, and he's more loving even when he is being firm. But it is the same, even when it's laws and edicts and rules. And he's saying, if you ignore my word, it's going to go wrong. People are going to get hurt. You will get hurt. But if you want to know life to the full, richness... And thrive. Here it is. This is how. These are the instructions. Read this. And that's why those words are what David has used. David's saying, if we would just trust God, we'll discover his word. And then he comes into the adjectives. We'll discover his word to be perfect and trustworthy and right and radiant and pure and firm. In following them, we won't go wrong. And then he's got a series of outcomes for most of those phrases as well. Refreshing the soul. That's one I need. I need that right now. I'm in a season where I need my soul to be refreshed. I need the dryness to be watered, a bit like the earth across Britain. I need the cobwebs to be blown away. I wonder if you do. Making wise the simple. Maybe you need wisdom with that decision at work, or with that financial issue? How do we parent our children in this particular stage of their life? I need wisdom in my marriage. What is it for you? Giving joy to the heart, giving light to the eyes. Some of you might be thinking, yup, I need that right now. And we often pray about these, and that is good. And we're gonna do, as Andrew said, we're gonna, we're gonna have a chance to pray about some of these and others uh, in just a moment. But actually, David, is saying part of God's answer is simply spending time meeting God in his word. You see, David's saying it's the word that refreshes. It's the word that makes wise, wise the simple. It's the word that will give joy to our hearts and give light to our eyes. Remember, the word is it's not there for us to grow in knowledge, but to grow in relationship with God. And then verse 10, David explains, that's why meeting God in his word is... Uh, more precious, more valuable than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. Well, we come into land, and there's a surprise here. In verses 11 to 13, we approach the end of our journey. You see, David has got us to look up and look at the heavens and acknowledge there's a God behind it all. He's got us to look at the Scriptures and understand that God speaks to us through them. But now he invites us to look in at ourselves and reflect on, okay, what's our response gonna be, and, and, and David's response surprises me because I would've thought he would, he would look up and go, wow, what an amazing God, and he'd read this and he'd go, thank you, Lord, do you wanna know me and I can know you, and then I was expecting him to go, so here I am, what do you want me to do, I'm up for it, let's go, we're gonna win, this is awesome, send me. But he doesn't. If you look at it, verse 13 onwards, actually David's just aware of his own sin. He, he, he's suddenly broken before God. Four separate times, four separate words are used for sin in three verses. So David's come before this almighty and relational God and suddenly he's aware of his need for forgiveness. And here, right at the end, the psalm moves from descriptive poetry to a personal prayer. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And guys, our, our need is the same. We've, we've sung about the, the message of Christianity. is the, the wonderful news. It is that the price for our forgiveness has been paid. We come to the cross again and again. We sing about it rightly. And we should never move from it. But when our hidden faults come to light, how quickly are we? to get on our knees and confess and repent. When we're conscious of those willful sins, when we become conscious of those, it's time for us to deal with them and no longer leave them just like, oh yeah, that's, that's annoying, that's frustrating because that's when they rule over us. We're going to pray now. We've got a little bit of time before the little guys need to be uh, collected. And I think what we might do as we pray, and maybe the band will come up and the keys can play something but maybe to start with in our time of prayer I'd invite us just to have a fair bit of quiet where we can just come before God in confession and repentance let's, let's invite the spirit just to put his finger on something that, if there's something that we need to deal with if there's something we need to pray to him about so you might wish to close your eyes or just focus on God He's the God of all creation, and yet he's the God who comes close. And Holy Spirit, we invite you now. Would you reveal to us if there's something you want us to deal with? Something we need to come to you about. Convict us of where we need to say sorry to you and maybe sorry to someone else. Lord, where we've got hidden faults, reveal them to us. Where there are willful sins and actions and behaviors. Give us the strength to tackle them with you, before you. So, Lord Jesus, we are sorry for all those things that haven't pleased you for the times we've let you down and we ask for your forgiveness that you won for us on the cross forgive us and equip us to live a godly life Now I wonder if, uh, if you're able, would you like to stand? And we're going to pray into one or two other things. Some things that might come out of this passage. Some things that even from earlier in the service you were thinking about. Some of you will know that that stuff that you've been saying sorry to Jesus for, some will know that there's actually more you need to do. And the Bible tells us sometimes it's so powerful to confess our sins to one another. Very often, the power of sin is in its secrecy when no one else knows. Even ask God to show you who you might talk to. But we're going to open up this space at the front to come and pray and some may wish to pray, some may wish, wish to have a restored confidence in the gospel, in the word, in their belief in Jesus before family and friends. Maybe that courage to make that invitation. Come to Alpha. Come to our comedy night. Come and chat about this. If you want that restored confidence, I'd love to pray with you that we're no longer intimidated, that we can be confident. For some, it's just simply that longing for the Word to come alive again, to come fresh. There's been that dryness, to experience its sweetness. We'd love to pray for you on that. It might be about refreshing the soul, making wise the simple. So now's now's the chance. If you'd like to come up, we'd love to pray with you. There may be other things as well, but do come on up and let's pray
1: together.